We're going to open up to Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven daughters and three, had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes. And they would invite their sisters to drink and eat with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then. Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking... Yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. 
the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Ian's going to come up and give us a word from God. Well, good afternoon. Good to see you all here. It's uh, good to be back here at uh, the University of Sydney, Australia's oldest, premier and best university, after which the whole city has been named. It is uh, wonderful to be with you and uh, to open God's Word with you. Uh, I just wanna, I'm just wondering, who's got a mobile phone? Oh, of course. Keep your hand up if your cap's over $100 a month. That's amazing. 70, over 70, over, over $50 a month. I used to have a cap on my previous mobile phone that was $29 a month and I'd had that for two years. The problem was I had never in that two-year period reached my minimum spend of $20. So in the last two years, I've managed to find through Vodafone a cap that is $19 a month with a minimum spend of $10 a month and I'm just about to renew my phone and again, I have not yet in any one month reached my minimum spend. So if any of you know of a $9 cap on a mobile phone, um, I'd be really keen to hear about it. If you've had the misfortune to speak to me on the phone, you'll know that I'm not a great fan of phones. And I'll tell you why. And chances are by the time you get to my age, you may be the same. You may be there already. The problem for me is I've received too many bad phone calls. Let me tell you about a couple of them. 9th of August, 
1981. Blythe and I had been married for about eight months. It was Sunday afternoon. We just had people for lunch. The phone rang and I kid you not, my wife literally fell with tears. Her mother had had a car accident. Her 13-year-old sister was killed instantly. And we were told not to expect her mother to live. 25th of October, 2001. It had been a really bad week for me. Earlier that week, I had been told by a medical specialist that my body was riddled with cancer from my diaphragm to my jaw and it was inoperable. I was told we need to find out what sort of cancer it is and do further tests and I had waited for that long, long week and I was finally in the doctor's waiting room. Uh, Those of you who are going into medicine, please instruct your receptionist never to do what she did to me that day. She said, nice to see you. The doctor has your results, but, terrible words, please take a seat because the doctor wants to talk to your GP before he talks to you. He's about to phone him. What do you mind go to? I don't like phones. 11th of November 2007. We just got home from church. My father had been slowly dying for over a year. And the nurse said, you should come and you should come quickly. We only had to drive from Burwood to the North Shore. But before we arrived, he passed away. Sometimes when it comes to suffering, you might ask that ridiculous question, why me? Let's do a syllogism. I'm only going to give you two parts of it. Here's the first part. Everybody suffers. True? True. You are somebody. True? True. You can do the third part of the syllogism. I don't know why we say, why me, when it comes to suffering, because suffering comes to all of us. But in our post-enlightenment scientific age, we think that everything needs to have a reason and a purpose. And, And suffering just doesn't make sense for us. In our education system, the reason you got into university is because you were trained to succeed. And the reason you're going to get a job when you leave university is because you are being trained to succeed. But I want to ask you, in the last 15 years of education that you've been involved in, when was the last time someone trained you to fail? When was the last time someone trained you not about keeping the balls all up in the air at the same time, but about dropping the ball? It doesn't fit into our agenda. And so we need to look over the next couple of weeks at this book of Job. Now, I used to be an English teacher. Who's studying English? Good, well done. If you're studying English, you can read and therefore you can do anything. Let me, let me tell you about a little bit of English, a little device in English literature. It's called dramatic irony. You may know what it is already. Dramatic irony is this. It is when you, the reader, 
see everything that's happening in the story. You know all the details, but the characters inside the story only see their little world. They don't see all the details. Uh, you, you see it in books, you, you see it in, it's on Neighbours, it's on Home and Away, you, you'll, you'll find it everywhere. Dramatic irony. When we come to Job, we're going to have an enormous advantage over Job for the next couple of weeks because we're going to see the lot. We're going to go to heaven this, this afternoon. Job doesn't get there in Job chapter 1. We're going to see the whole picture. We're going to read by sight, but Job is going to walk by faith. So, Act 1 of Job, there's five scenes. It's quite simple, the structure of today's talk. It goes like this. We start on earth, we go to heaven. We come back to earth, we go to heaven. We come back to earth, we have afternoon tea and we go to our next, next lecture. Okay? Earth, heaven, earth, heaven, earth, and that's the end of it. Let's go to earth. Chapter 1, scene 1, we start in the land of Uz. Now, I really don't understand why EU, when they ask me to come and speak here, a couple of times I've spoken here now. It's always from the Old Testament. I mean, last time I came here, I spoke on Abraham. This time I'm speaking on Job. Um, I teach New Testament at the PTC, but, you know, that's okay. Uh, so I've had to do a fair, bit of, a fair bit of background to try and work out where Uz is, and I've read all the Old Testament scholars on where Uz is, and do you want to know the scholarly answer of where Uz is? This is my perspective, having read it all in preparation for this. We don't know. No idea, but it's somewhere in the East. And here is this man, and he's a rich man. He has seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, servants. He is the greatest man in all of the East. Now, let's look at verse 1 very carefully. Let's see how Job is described in verse 1. Listen to this. He is blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now let me tell you, if you wrote that in one of your essays, your lecturer or your tutor would put a big red line through that and they would put the, the word above it, tautology. You're saying the same things four times over. Listen to it. Blameless, upright, feared God, turned away from evil says the same thing four times over. I wonder how you think of yourself as a Christian. Often we think of ourselves as Christians as, as people who are sinful, as people who are totally depraved, as people who are riddled with guilt. That's certainly true. When was the last time you thought of yourself as blameless? See, it's not as though Job had never sinned. In verse 5, we see that Job has been to offer sacrifice. And the reason he offers sacrifice is because he has sinned. But having repented, having been forgiven through sacrifice, he is now seen as blameless, upright, Fearing God, turning away from sin. It is so important that we get that on board before we come to the issue of suffering. Most people that I know associate suffering some way with a lack of virtue. At my stage of life, every so often, a, a friend of mine will have a heart attack. 
and we, I'll go along to the hospital or I might go with some friends or I might go with my wife and we'll go and see him or her who's had the heart attack and we'll be very warm and compassionate towards him but as we're coming away we'll think, oh well, you know, he was a bit overweight after all and he really didn't exercise that much. We're really quick to apportion blame. At my stage of life, it's, it's really not unusual when I get together with my friends from EU back in a generation gone by, we actually start to talk about our kids and a topic that always seems to come up is sometimes our kids are just not working out and doing the things that we want them to do. They don't have the ethical values and the moral values that we wanted them to have. And we'll be very warm and compassionate in the conversation, but as we come away, we'll think... <laughs> I saw that happening when those kids were toddlers. They had no idea how to raise children. And we're really quick to apportion blame. Sometimes it happens in reverse. Sometimes the most virtuous and upright person that we have ever met is diagnosed with cancer. And we say, I don't know why that happened to her of all people. Because we have this association between virtue and prosperity. That's not what Asaph says in Psalm 73. He says, I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the pro- when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Please do not think that living a virtuous Christian life in this world will result in health, wealth and prosperity. Job was, in case you didn't get it, blameless, upright, feared God, turned away from evil. Get the point? The second reason that people tell us that people suffer is because, well, you know, hey, it's just bad luck. You just drew the wrong straw. I mean, after all, life's pretty random, isn't it? And that person's pretty unlucky. I mean, both those reasons are really self-justifying. I mean, the reason that she got cancer and I didn't is because she's a worse person than I am. It's self-justifying. Or the reason that he got this terrible thing happening to him and his business collapsed and I didn't is because I'm lucky and he's not. They're basically self-justifying opinions and Job will have none of that. And so we're introduced to the greatest man in all the East. He is prosperous. He is virtuous. He offers sacrifice. He is blameless. Let's go to heaven. What we're going to see now, Job never sees. In the whole book of Job, Job does not understand what is happening behind the scene, but we're going to see it now as we go to this imperceptible world. And in verse 6, we see that there is God and his sons. Or it may say in your Bible, that's what it says in the ESV, it may say in your Bible, God and his angels, because that's what it is. And within that company of angels, there is an intruder. Uh, Let me teach you a Hebrew word. Uh, This Hebrew word means deceiver. And the Hebrew word is Satan. Here within the company of God, is an intruder. And this intruder has a conversation with God. (laughs) If it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny. 
the omniscient God goes to the Satan and says, where have you come from? As if God doesn't know. And then in verse 7 it goes on, well, I've been just going here and pro upon the earth. Verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. And in case you didn't get it from verse 1, listen, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. We get it again. And the Satan says, you're kidding. He says, really? Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 5,000 camels, so many goats and so many herds. You really think that Job loves you? You put a hedge around him. Job doesn't love you. He loves what you give him. He loves the prosperity. He loves the reputation. He loves the kids. He loves the animal. He loves being the greatest man in all the earth. God, you're kidding. You think that Job has put his hand in your hand? No way. He's only just interested in what's in your hand. He says, does Job fear God for nothing in verse 9. I want to tell you that I think that is one of the most essential questions of humanity. Is there such a thing as disinterested goodness? Is there such a thing as pure love? Do you want to be loved? I'll tell you how to do it. Drive down Parramatta Road, take your bank book, and try and buy a new car. Let me tell you, the salesperson will love you. But it kind of is not fulfilling, isn't it? It's not the kind of love that we crave. Do you sometimes go and join a new church and you actually wonder whether you're being loved or whether you're being networked? Sometimes when you go to your church, maybe do you sometimes think that they're not really interested in me, they just like the fact I can play the piano? Do you sometimes feel, no matter where you are, a bit like an object, that people are only interested in me because I'm good with kids and I can help out in the kids' program? At the core of our being, we long for, we yearn for, disinterested goodness. We yearn for someone just to give us unconditional love. That's the question that the Satan asks of God. Does Job fear God for nothing? And not only is it at the core of our humanity that we long to have disinterested goodness, that people would be interested in us, but when we start to treat other people like objects, all of a sudden we start to become dehumanised ourselves. It doesn't take very long and soon you're actually using people for your ends. Soon you become a manipulator, you become cynical, you become hardened. Good friends of mine have got a son, he's about 10 years of age and he has a disability in the fact that he cannot in any way show emotion. For the last 10 years his parents have been loving this son and the son's behaviour is socially inappropriate. 
He cannot respond in love and he has never responded in love and never will. And I want to say to you that I wish you could meet my friends because I think they are two of the most human humans that I've ever met. They've actually learnt or are continuing to learn disinterested goodness, unconditional love and they're actually being humanised in a very hard way through suffering. And so God says to the Satan, okay, do your worst to Job. Now look, I'm the principal of a theological college. I'm meant to understand theology. I want to say to you, I don't understand this theology. I understand the first half, not the second half. Maybe you can explain it to me afterwards, but my guess is you won't understand it either. But here it goes. Should we trust God? Should Christians, Christians trust God? Yes or no? Absolutely. But what's happening here? Who is the Satan challenging? He's not actually challenging Job. He's challenging God. How is God going to be vindicated? God is going to be vindicated because God trusts Job. Job's action in suffering brings vindication to God in the heavenly court. I don't understand it. I understand all about what it means for me to trust in God, but I really do not understand what it means for God to trust Job, that God would be vindicated in the unseen world that Job never sees. It's a key to understanding our response to suffering. And so he says, all that is in his hand is yours. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Scene three. We come back to earth. And it's a horrendous scene. And just in case you've forgotten that he's blameless and upright and he fears God and he turns away from evil, as we get to verse 13, he's just offered sacrifice again. He is blameless. And then we see like four successive daggers News comes. The first one that comes is that, is that the Sabaeans have come, they have taken your herds and all your servants are dead who are looking after your herds except for me, I'm the only one to survive. Secondly, we see the fire of God falls from heaven. I assume that probably means lightning. Falls from heaven and it struck the sheep and they're all gone. And all the servants. Only me the messenger to tell you the message. Thirdly, we read the Chaldeans have raided your camels and they have killed those servants as well. Any of you live on the North Shore? Yep. My mother lives on the North Shore and there was that amazing little mini tornado that went through North Taramara, St Ives. Yes, remember on Easter Sunday just last week? A massive gum tree fell in the midst of that. My mother's widow in her 80s fell onto her house. Fortunately, she was at my sister's place uh, having a meal. But not so for Job's children. A similar storm hit. All ten of his children were there together at the oldest brother's house. 
and in one storm they're all killed. How would you respond? I'm sure that many of you have suffered in severe ways. I'm sure we all will. How will you respond? Numb? Unbelief? Total collapse? I reckon if it was me, I'd be racing out there and in some crazed attempt, I'd be ripping up all the bricks and I'd be trying to find one of my sons or one of my daughters. Maybe one of them is still breathing. Are you doing law? Or maybe you might sue the builder who built the house because he didn't follow the proper building code. Maybe you might actually get an army together after all, you're the greatest man of all the East and seek to attack the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. Maybe you'd blame the kids. Honestly, my kids, they're always into a partying lifestyle. They should have been out in the field. If they were out in the field, it wouldn't have happened to them. I've been a a Christian minister for over a quarter of a century and let me tell you, I have knocked on the doors of more people than I choose to remember to give them bad news. I've sat in the hospital bed next to people who are dying again and again. I've seen tragedy again and again and the thing I see constantly is that people blame themselves so often unjustifiably. Would you curse God? That's the question. What does Job do? Try and picture this. The greatest man in all the East. We read that Job gets up He tears his robe in verse 20. He shaves his head and he falls to the ground in grief. Surely we as Christians shouldn't behave like that. We should have a stronger view of the resurrection, surely. No, in verse 22 we read, And in all of this, Job did not sin. It's right and proper to express grief. Do you remember Jesus going to Lazarus' tomb? And and Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb and Lazarus has been dead a couple of days and Jesus says, is this how it goes? Well, hey, it's okay, don't worry guys, he'll be up again in in a few minutes, just wait, I'm the resurrection and the life, you'll be able to see what I can do. Is that what Jesus says? How good are you at memory verses? Pretty good? Here's a memory verse for you. It's a pretty easy one. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Do you know what it is? Tell me. Jesus wept. The sinless Son of God wept. And in all of this, Job did not sin. I don't know how often I've seen people in grief and they kind of control themselves like this. And I don't know how often I've heard people say, I'm terrified of what will happen if I let go. I'm terrified of what will happen if I lose control. I just have to hold it together. Well, I'll tell you what will happen if you let go. Waves of grief will billow over you with sadness that you have never experienced. But as those waves come, so you will begin to heal. Job expressed grief. And God has made you that way. 
and it is a good thing, for in all this Job did not sin. And not only did he grieve, but he also worshipped God. He worshipped God and he said, Naked I came into the world and naked I will leave. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, when I came into the world, I'll tell you what, I was naked, as were you, and I didn't have, I didn't come into the world with seven sons, three daughters and 7,000 sheep which I'm sure my mother is incredibly grateful. (laughs) It was just me coming into the world. And so everything I have outside of my naked body, everything I have after that is a gift from God. This is really hard for me to say. That includes my kids. That includes my house. It includes my parents. It includes my brothers and my sisters. It includes my wife. Naked I came into this world and naked I will depart. The Lord gave. And Job recognised this and fell to his gra- the ground and worshipped God. Scene 4, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. We now go back to the imperceptible world of heaven. And we see kind of a rerun of chapter 1. Satan comes before the Lord, where have you been, Satan? And he says, well, I've just been going to and fro on the earth. And you read that and you think, really, I've just read chapter 1, if that's what you call to and fro upon the earth. Such an understatement. And from walking up and down, verse 3, God says, have you considered my servant Job? And in case you didn't get it the first time or the second time, he is a blameless man, upright, fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to integrity. And the Satan says, skin for skin. A man will give everything to save his own skin. I mean, really, if you understand us in our depraved, fallen nature, you say you love your kids and you you say you love your parents, you say you love your siblings, but really, it's not like that. People on earth, they only love themselves, skin for skin. I'll never forget about ten years ago, I was in Atlanta in the United States and I met a Christian man who had had a pretty chequered background and it was in a church that was in a very difficult part of Atlanta, probably Darlinghurst, King's Cross sort of area of Atlanta. And this man had a real problem coping with the fact that he'd been forgiven. And he shared that with me. And I gave him a few pious platitudes, God has forgiven you, you'll be okay, you've got to actually accept the forgiveness of God, all that sort of stuff, until he then told me his story. You see, before becoming a Christian he'd actually been a drug addict and a drug dealer. And in order to support his habit, he had pimped his own daughters into prostitution. And if that wasn't bad enough, he then said to me, and what I have to live with now 
is that one of my daughters has full-blown AIDS. How do you get to that level? How do you deal? I had no words for him except reminding him of the Gospel. The Satan says, skin for skin. The world is so fallen that people will do anything to protect their own skin. And so God says, okay, do what you want for it to him, but only spare his life. And so we come to the final scene, scene 5, verses 7 to 10. And I'm sorry, this scene is MA rated because it's very graphic. Do you know what an infected hair follicle is? It's a boil. And it comes up and it's incredible. It's not just a pimple, it's a really big one. And it's, in, it's, it's pus from his head to his toes. And we read there in chapter 2 that he's, he's sitting on the ash heap and he's got shards of pottery and he's lancing that pus because he wants to get the pain out. But we read later in the book when it scabs over, more pus appears. In chapter 7, we read about the fact that his body is infested with worms. In chapter 4, and this is not surprising, we read about the fact that he can't sleep at night. He's got such bad nightmares. So much, no, not he's in pain from the boils, he's sleep deprived. And if that's not bad enough, in chapter 2, verse 9, he has to live with a nagging wife who says to him, curse God and die, curse God and die. You know, if I could have gone back there and said this to Job, if I could have said, Job, your story will one day be recorded in a book that will be the world's bestseller. And if I could have gone back there and said, Job, For thousands of years to come, millions, no, billions of people will be encouraged to be faithful in their suffering because of what you're doing. It would sound positively heroic. If I could have said to him, Job, I know you don't speak this language, but there's going to be this language that's going to evolve over time called English, and we have an expression in English that is the patience of Job. I mean, saying it like that sounds positively heroic. How much of that did Job know? None of it. He walked by faith and not by sight. And yet God used his his suffering to bring blessing to many. But many years after Job, there was another man. His name was Jesus. And he too was blameless. But unlike Job, he wasn't blameless because his sins had been forgiven. He was blameless because he had never sinned. And he was born of a woman. Her name was Mary. And he came into the world naked. And none of us knows what our state of dress will be when we leave this world. But I do know what his state of dress was. And please don't believe medieval art when it's got a very carefully placed loincloth. When the Romans executed people, it was for public shame and he left the world naked. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Why did he do that? Was it so that your sins and my sins might be forgiven? 
Well, yes, that is absolutely true. But I want to say to you this afternoon that that is the number two reason, if you read your Gospels carefully. There is actually even a higher priority in the Gospels for why Jesus suffers. Jesus suffers out of love for the Father. Jesus suffers as the faithful Son. When we come to the cross, we discover there is such a thing as disinterested goodness. There is such a thing as unconditional love. And the blessing that flows from the suffering of Jesus even transcends the blessing that flows from the suffering of Job. So I don't know when the phone will ring for you again, but it will. I pray that at the moment you're going through pretty still waters, but when it rings again, remember God's faithfulness in suffering. Remember you are not seeing the whole story, but there are the imperceptible realities of God. And please don't ask, why me? Please ask God, use me to your glory and praise. Thanks, Ian. It's pretty weighty stuff. Um, It's impossible that in a room this size, I'm sure some of you are wading through some pretty horrible stuff at the moment. So... Whilst I might not understand, um, we know a God who does, so why don't we pray to him. Dearest Father, thank you that you have loved us with a totally disinterested goodness. Father, thank you that when those seasons of sadness set in and our grief shrinks all visibility and horizons, Lord, would you please gently lift our gaze and give light to our failing eyes. Would you turn up gaze upon Jesus, the suffering servant in whose name we come before you now. Would you turn our gaze upon Jesus, one acquainted with grief and the one by whom we are each intimately known. Thank you that you do understand and thank you that we don't need to fumble around with clumsy words and attempt to explain. You look into us and you know exactly what we feel. Thank you that we don't have to hold it together with you but we can run to you like a child to their father and collapse into your strong arms. Thank you that, though you are infinite and far above this all, you dwell also with the broken and contrite in heart. Although you are always near, would you please be especially near to those who are in pain right now? Would you quiet them with your love and restore them by your grace? Father, would you bring about comfort and healing through us And would you give us insight into how to be your hands and your feet to those who suffer. Thank you that you hear us because of Jesus. Amen.